0: Now, our first uh, scripture reading comes from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Our New Testament reading is from uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. I'll read verse 27 through 30. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist. And others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then our scripture uh, text for today, our sermon text comes from the book of Exodus. I'll read the first 14 verses of the first chapter. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look. The Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Or they will increase, and the event of war join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built cities, Python and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians subjected the Israelites to hard servitude and made their lives bitter uh, with hard servitude and mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed upon them. All right, so today we are going to begin a sermon series on the book of Exodus. You'll notice that I have worn an appropriate tie for this event, so, you know. Uh, Very excited about this, uh, because in many ways, the story of the Bible is actually the story of the Exodus. Uh, The Exodus story was the foundational text for ancient Israel. Uh, When the people of Israel would tell their story about who they were, they typically began with the story of the Exodus. Uh, The Exodus is referenced repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Uh, And when Israel is defeated by the Babylonians, the prophets look forward to a new Exodus Uh, for the people of Israel. In the New Testament, the Gospels and Paul allude to the Exodus often. And they see the themes of Exodus being fulfilled in the story of Jesus. And so, for the Old and New Testament, uh, for the whole Bible, the Exodus is kind of like this, it functions like this paradigm. It's the paradigmatic example of what salvation looks like. It's the book where we learn who God is and what it means to be God's people and what it means to live as God's people in the world. And so that's why we're studying Exodus. But um, to to begin with uh, in our study here, uh, I want to make a a pretty important point. And so I have a question for you. So for a thousand resurrection church points, this sounds like it's going to be easy. What is the first word of Exodus? Anybody know? Did you just read it? Yeah. (laughs) These, yeah? That's wrong. Yes, that's what it says in your Bible, but it's wrong. And I really wish uh, Dale were here, because Dale would get this question right. Uh, I've actually already got it written on my uh, notes here. Uh, The first word is and. The first word of Exodus is and, okay? It's actually been left out. So um, it says, and these are the names. And the Old Testament makes use of the word and quite a bit. Um, In our translations, you know, we kind of see and as a redundant word. And it is. And so for the most part, uh, our translations leave it out. But occasionally this and is important. And and I think this is one of those places where the and is important. Now, the reason the and is important here is because it tells us that Exodus is part of a bigger story. Exodus is not a standalone work, and it needs to be understood in the context of what came before. Uh, The and is telling us that the events and people of Exodus are connected to what's come before it, mainly the book of Genesis. So understanding that the first word of Exodus is and is key. Because it alerts us to, uh, to to understand that if we want to see the message of Exodus, we've got to be on the lookout for references back to uh, Genesis. Now, in like the theology literature business, we call this uh, this idea intertextuality. Okay, but. You know, we're people, we're familiar with the internet. And so I like to think of it more as like hyperlinks, okay? So, you you know, like when you go to Wikipedia, right? And there's these little words on blue and you can click on them and then you read like a whole lot more. That's kind of how a lot of this is going to work in Exodus. We're going to see references to Genesis that are kind of uh, work like uh, hyperlinks, okay? So you click on the blue words and you learn a whole lot more. So we find lots of these in this first 14 uh, verses of, uh, of Exodus. Lots of references back to Genesis, okay? So, for example, our passage starts off by repeating a genealogy of Joseph. And it's very similar to a genealogy that's found in Genesis 46. In fact... Uh, to beat us over the head with it, uh, the book of Exodus actually preserves the grammar of uh, Genesis 46, uh, even though it's really awkward. There's a, there's a participle form of the verb verb. Uh, Come, Okay, so these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Okay, so that's how it translates. That's not actually what it says. It actually says these are the names of the sons of Israel coming to Egypt, right? Like it's got the tense almost wrong. Like, so, you know, helpfully uh, to make sense of it, our translations give us the past tense. But really, uh, that, that's more like a, a present active tense there, um, which is like really weird and awkward. But it's almost like it's been copied and pasted, right? Because it wants us to see that connection back to Genesis. Now, because of this connection with Genesis, it's helpful uh, to think of the Joseph story as kind of a bridge, okay? The Joseph story acts like a bridge uh, between Genesis and Acts. The story of Joseph takes up the last third of Genesis, starting at, like, Genesis has 50 chapters. It's so starting at, like, chapter 37 is the story of Joseph. And now, uh, at this beginning of Exodus, we find all these mentions of Joseph. Now, there's more, though. Uh, within this passage, there are many more hyperlinks that connect us back to Genesis. For example, look at verse 7. It's, like, full of them, okay? It's, like, they cram every single Genesis idea possible in verse 7. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. OK If you uh, go back to Genesis chapter one and two, the creation story, all of those words are like all throughout. The children of Israel were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied, they grew strong. Uh, all of those words are uh, what God uses for creation. So for example, Genesis 120. God orders the waters to increase greatly with swarms of living creatures. I think actually the word swarm is is used here, um, but it doesn't seem like swarm is a good word for people, so uh, it it, it it changes into a different word. Uh, In Genesis 121, God creates the great sea monsters and land animals and birds, and he commands them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea. And then after he creates humans in Genesis 1.28, God blesses them and orders them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So you see in verse 7, all of these different ideas about creation are kind of crammed together. And so what Exodus is doing is connecting us both to the beginning and end of Genesis here. So. The, the, the Genesis begins with creation, ends with Joseph. Uh, and so it's letting us know that this is a continuation of the story that began in Genesis. Um, the family of Joseph has fulfilled the vision of the world that was presented in the creation story. Creation began with abundance and prosperity. And Joseph and his family have brought abundance and prosperity to Egypt. Uh, You know, you remember the famous story of Joseph. Joseph is about Joseph rising from a slave to a high position in Pharaoh's court. And uh, he does so uh, by saving Egypt with his plan to store grain in preparation for a coming famine. And so Joseph's story exemplifies what God's all about uh, in Genesis uh, for creation. Now, What do I mean by that? Well, let's think about Genesis kind of like broad terms. What is the story of Genesis? If I were to paint it in broad strokes, uh, Genesis is is about humans uh, corrupting the good, prosperous creation that God starts off with through violence, exploitation, and oppression. Uh, All of that's detailed in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And God responds to that problem by calling out this person, Abram. Uh, He calls out Abram and he says to Abram, I'm going to bless you and your family so that you can be a blessing to the rest of the world. So that's what our first reading from Genesis 12 is all about. In fact, it's probably like the key, those three verses in Genesis 12, we, we read them all the time. When I preach, I, I'm sure you've heard me reference this multiple times. It may be like the most important three verses in the Old Testament. And the reason why, because this is God's plan. This is how God's going to save the world. I'm going to uh, take these people, I'm going to bless them, and then I want them to be a blessing to other people. Basically, restoring what what is blessing. It's it's all the ideas of creation. You know what was good about creation? It was abundant. There was life. There was growth. There was flourishing. There's multiplication. All those are ideas that are contained within the word blessing. And. The problem that resulted from the fall that led to the corruption of the good creation are addressed by the family of Abraham, whose purpose is to bless the creation and restore uh, God's creation, right? The abundance, the flourishing prosperity. Um, and the end of Genesis shows Joseph doing exactly that. Joseph is Abraham's great-grandson, and he's doing this restoring. So this is what Genesis is supposed to look at this is like the purpose now at the beginning of Exodus though we see that God's plan that was begun by Abraham and was exemplified by Joseph is being thwarted by this character Pharaoh Uh, while the Israelites are doing exactly what they are purposed for uh, they are being contained by Pharaoh in Egypt they are multiplying but they are not filling and subduing the earth they are being prevented from being a blessing and fulfilling their destiny uh, which you know, is nothing less than the restoration of creation they're being contained Pharaoh is containing and oppressing them so that they are not doing what they are supposed to be doing uh, the Pharaoh does not know Joseph uh, instead he's concerned about the abundance and prosperity of the people of Israel now as we know from Genesis this abundance and prosperity is a sign of blessing this is a good thing but Pharaoh views it differently. He sees it as a bad thing. Uh, he sees it as something to be feared. He sees the Israelites as a threat. Now, we're actually going to come back to this idea next week about why Pharaoh sees it as a threat. Because I think it's, a, it's important to understanding like how people work and how we are in the world. But you know, for right now, I just, want to, I, I just think it's to note that Pharaoh is, fear, Pharaoh is fearful of what is actually God's blessing. And so Pharaoh says, "Let us deal shrewdly with them." Uh, so in Hebrew, the word for shrewd here is hakim, and and, and shrewd translate, translated. And that's not a bad way, but but really another way. Um, it doesn't really necessarily have that like negative idea. So shrewd, we think of like you know cunning or something like that. But it, but it's actually usually translated as wise. Pharaoh's looking for wisdom. He wants to know what's the wise way to deal with this situation. Uh, What's the wisest course of action to take here? Now, what's interesting about this word here, shrewd, the hakim or wise, is that it's another one of these hyperlinks. It's another one of these blue words in Wikipedia, right? And it's a hyperlink back to Genesis 41 in the Joseph story. So, you know, remember back to Sunday school, think back to the Joseph story, and you remember that Pharaoh has this dream, right? And uh, it really troubles him, uh, okay? He doesn't know what to do with it, and so he, or he gets what? What, is he, what? what is the solution? Let me get all the wise men of Egypt to tell me what this dream is and what I'm supposed to do about it. And, of course, none of them are able to do so. But he hears about this wise man who's not Egyptian named Joseph. And Joseph successfully interprets the dream and explains to Pharaoh that what the dream means is that there's going to be a famine. And it's going to be really bad. But what he can do is he can prepare for it. What what Pharaoh needs to do is put a wise man in charge of storing grain in preparation for this famine. And by doing so, the effects of this famine will, uh, will be alleviated and Egypt will be, will be saved. And Pharaoh says, where am I going to get such a wise man? Wait a minute, there you are, Joseph. You're just the wise man I need. You're number two guy in Egypt. And Joseph saves Egypt uh, by sharing uh, God's uh, blessing uh, prosperity, you know, abundance, right? So, 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 so Joseph brings life, uh, to Egypt, uh, by his wisdom. So, you know, all throughout that story, that wisdom is being repeated. You hear that word over and over again. And now here is this Pharaoh who is using this word with trying to wonder, like, what, what is wise? What is wisdom? Like he's searching for wisdom. Um, it, 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 but notice the contrast, right? So, so you know, you got the Pharaoh in, in Genesis. He, like, listened to Joseph. But look at this Pharaoh we find in Exodus 1. He wants to know what is wise, just like his predecessor. But he doesn't know Joseph. And so he's actively repressing the source of wisdom rather than embracing it. And, and, and you know, his concern isn't even real. It's hypothetical. He's worried, uh, you know, if the Israelites multiply. And if war breaks out, they might join my enemies, right? He doesn't even know that's going to happen. It's like a hypothetical. And so what is the solution? Well, I'm going to enslave them. I'm going to impress them. And I'm going to make them build some store cities, okay? So what are these store cities? Uh, that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, I, this was kind of cool. I did some research on this. And, you know, what's going on with these store cities? So there's two of them, Python and Ramsey. And Python actually means house of Atom. So Atom is the uh, sun god, okay? Uh, and Ramses, which is actually the name of the line of pharaohs, you probably heard of Ramses II. He's kind of like the like, uh, uh, you know, stereotypical great pharaoh. Uh, you know, if you're familiar with the poem by Percy Shelley, Ozymandias, that's actually about Ramses II, right? Um, so his name means uh, son of Ra. So Ra's the sun god. Weird Egyptian thing, Ra and Atum, the sun god, are kind of used interchangeably. But the point is that these storcities were most likely connected with the pharaoh and this sun cult that the pharaoh worshipped, and they were likely what pharaoh is doing here is he's like, hey, I'm a pharaoh. I need to. I'm going to die someday, but to to keep my spirit, you know, my going on, I need to be worshipped. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to store up a bunch of stuff so that some priests can continue to uh, 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 worship me and the sun god uh, after I'm dead. Okay, So so Pharaoh right here is actually providing for his death (laughs) is what's going on. Um, So you see the contrast again. Joseph wisely stored food to provide for the Egyptians during a time of famine, so that the Egyptians would prosper and flourish. Pharaoh, though, in his path to wisdom, oppresses the Israelites and builds store cities so he can feed priests that would perform rituals after Pharaoh's death. So Israel is about feeding people and thus giving them life. Well, Pharaoh is about taking away food from the people to prepare for death. So there's this really big contrast going on here. Now, as part of their forced servitude, the people are conscripted to hard labor in, and you notice what it says here, mortar and brick, okay? That's another hyperlink. So that's another like blue word in Wikipedia, right? So where do we read about mortar and brick in Genesis? Anybody got, uh, well, I'll give you 500 resurrection points for this. Where do you read that? Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, yeah. Nice. In Genesis eleven three, 500 resurrection church points. We read about the people building a tower in a city out of mortar and brick. Now, we're going to look more on this next week, okay, the more on this connection, but the point of repeating this phrase from the Babel narrative is to show that Pharaoh's wisdom, what Pharaoh has decided is the wise course, is really a return to the state of humanity before Abram. So, so think about it. Think about the story of Genesis. You know, everything's bad. Genesis 1 through 11 is detailing like, you know, how the the good perfect creation went to like the bad creation with the Tower of Babel being kind of like the worst example of this, right? And so then we get to Genesis 12, which we read today, which is God's solution to that problem. I'm going to give this guy Abram, I'm going to bless him, and then he's going to bring a blessing to the world. He's going to bring the goodness of creation to the world. That's what I'm going to try to do here, okay? And so... um, What's happening is Pharaoh is actually, like, turning back the clock to before Abram, right? He's trying to go back to Babel, which, of course, was a bad thing. Pharaoh's wisdom is going in the wrong direction, okay? Uh, So, of course, we know the story of Exodus. Spoiler alert, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. But for right now, I want you to see how Exodus is being set up. We have a people who are meant to multiply and spread throughout the earth and bring blessing and goodness of God's original creation to the world. Uh, But instead, Pharaoh's rejected this path, and he's containing these people uh, that God had chosen to be a blessing. Pharaoh sees their multiplication as a threat, and he's chosen instead to thwart God's plan, turning back the clock to Babel. Which, you know, that's a good summary of what's going on in Exodus here. This is what we're being trying, what, what, what um, this introduction is trying to tell us. It's really cool. It does it like, um, you know, in this really short space um, because it's using all these hyperlinks with a ton of depth. Now, that's the introduction. But let's think about this, okay? If we're reading this in light of Genesis and everything and what's been going on, um, there's one pretty important character that is being left out here okay anybody, anybody want to take a guess who that character is who, what, what is left out who do we not hear about we've got Joseph we've got kind of like indirect references to Abraham and the covenant we've got references to creation one person that's really important in Genesis is God <laughs> okay and there's no mention of God here. In fact, God doesn't actually uh, get mentioned in the fir- until the very end of chapter 2. Now, uh, you know, th- like I said, that's pretty important. Genesis begins with God creating everything. He makes the covenant with Abraham. Uh, he uh, gives Joseph the wisdom to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. So it's kind of perplexing that he's absent in these first chapters. Now... I think the, the key here, though, is he seems to be absent. Because it, at the same time, he's indirectly everywhere, okay? Uh, so if, if you think about um, the story of Genesis again, let's go back. You know, What was the big threat to the family of Abraham that had to be overcome? Uh, a lot of times it was infertility right so uh, uh, Abraham's wife Sarah is barren that's the first thing we're actually told about her Uh, Isaac's wife Rebecca and uh, Jacob's wife Rachel all were were barren Uh, and yet God brought life out of them Uh, Even when their children were born, the life of the children was threatened. You know, Isaac's uh, life was threatened by Abraham's sacrifice. Uh, Jacob was threatened by his brother Esau. And of course, uh, you know, we know the story of Joseph uh, and his terrible brothers. Uh, But when we reach the beginning of Exodus, we read all of that, okay, has been overcome, right? We have this like thriving family that's multiplied and flourished to the point where like the greatest empire in the ancient world at that time is like scared okay so you know god has been working um what what the plan god had set out for in genesis 12 is coming to fruition here and so what we find is not so much an absent god but we do find a hidden god but that does beg another question here why does god reveal himself Kind of in, in, in this way. Why, why not in the bigger way? And I think the answer leads to a very important and practical lesson we can learn from this text. So I'm going to try this. I, th- I think this is going to work here. Let's say um, I say the word king. Okay, if I say the word king. Now, when I say the word king, you probably have a mental image in your head of what a king looks like, okay? Because we have certain ideas, like, when we think of king about what a king is. Um, uh, You know, I think of this, like, tall, big guy. He's probably got, like, a big crown. He's probably got, like, a nice, full beard. Uh, You know, he's probably holding a sword. You know, he's, like, this fierce dude who doesn't take any crap, okay? So if you're like me and, like, you're a fan of, like, English history, I'm going to say, like, Edward III or something like that. Anybody know Edward III? I don't know. That's just, to me, that's, like, the stereotypical king. I'll tell you who it's not. It's not Charles Third. okay? <laughs> yeah, it's not that. That is not, when I hear king, that's not what I think of. But, but maybe we do. But now your idea of king may be different, but I bet it's something like that, right? Like that's what comes to mind. Now, in the ancient world, everybody had a concept of a god, okay? They had this, this same kind of thing. They had a mental picture of what a god was. And actually, it's probably really similar to our idea of a king. Okay, so that's why I use that example because you know it's someone powerful, it's someone who gets what he wants, who tells people what to do, Uh, you know, someone who's not told what to do. And so, when you were God in the ancient world, you had this set of ideas that you thought about. Now, Pharaoh is acting kind of as a representation of a God on earth. Uh, uh, you know, so uh, you know, the pharaohs were usually uh, supposed to be kind of like stand-ins for the gods uh, yeah, uh, uh, They were the divine representative of the god on earth And so they would act the way they expected gods to act okay? So you know, here pharaoh is doing just that Pharaoh sees a threat what, what, what does a powerful god do? He eliminates that threat If he sees someone moving in his territory His first thought is not to accommodate and maybe seek understanding But to wipe them out It's us versus them, and power is what matters. And uh, you show that you are the real deal, that you are godlike, by exercising your power violently and ruthlessly. That's what went on. So that's the kind of idea of what gods and kings and that kind of thing we're talking about. And, And so that's what we see here in Pharaoh. However, the point of Genesis... And kind of the point of a lot of things is that the God of Israelites is not that kind of God. The God of the Bible is not that kind of God. Instead, the Israelite God is found in a different way, a a way that is more consistent with his unique character. Now, we know God's really powerful. That's clear, right? You know, he he moves instantly and decisively uh, to, you know, he creates the universe. But but here he's not just coming out with this like raw display of force or loud pronouncements that like the pharaoh might want to do instead God is acting how? by bringing about abundance by bringing about fertility by bringing about flourishing by bringing about life see God is here working not so much by this show of like violence and power but in a Different sort of power, uh, one that is about um, things like fidelity to his promises to his people, and 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 by bringing, like I said, this life and multiplication and abundance. So when we see these kind of things taking place in the world, we are seeing the God of Israel at work in the world, right? So, and I think this is why the the the, the God is hidden is important because if God is introduced we might just be tempted to fill in our own concept of who God is. I mean, we might start to see God as being like, you know, the, 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 um, the ancient ideas about God. Um, and Israel needs to see their God is different from the other gods of their world. Um, and so I think the hiddenness here is to try to get across, like, we're not dealing with the same kind of God. Now, we have the same tendency, too. We still have this tendency. Uh, so if I may quote Star Trek... We all create God in our own image, okay? Um, American Christianity has been having a lot of fun doing this uh, for some time now. You know, we rejected the self-sacrificing, accepting Jesus who had rejected the sword and washed his feet uh, for a Jesus that looks way more like Pharaoh. And, you know, that's something Jesus also has to struggle with. Um, so, uh, you know, you may be wondering... Where does that passage from Mark, how does that relate to anything, right? So I'm going to tell you, okay? So our, our passage that we read from Mark, where Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus says, don't tell anyone, is an example of, a, um, of something that Mark does repeatedly called the Messianic secret. So Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah, and immediately Jesus orders Peter not to tell anyone. And that same scenario is repeated throughout Mark. It's like, it happens like six or seven times. You know, Jesus like, does something cool. Someone's like, wow, that's really cool. I think you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, we're going to keep that under wraps. Like, don't tell anyone. Now, why does Jesus do that? And, it, I mean, it seems weird. Um, and I, I think it's related to why God is kind of hidden here. Um, the reason why that both Jesus and God are kind of hidden is because, like, for Jesus, this idea of a Messiah already had this, like, concept, this, this well formed concept of, of what was going to happen or, or what a Messiah was. But it's, it wasn't really correct. And so, what Jesus is doing at the beginning of the gospel, just like God is doing here at the beginning of Exodus, is he needs to, them to see that his power is different. He exercises it in a different sort of way than the Pharaohs do. Just like Jesus is trying to show like, you know, when you think of a Messiah, you're thinking of like this powerful king that's going to come in and violently take over, you know. That's what the Caesar does. That's what a Pharaoh does. But that's not what I do. And so what, what, what I think Exodus is trying to do and what I think what Mark is trying to do is say like, look, you need to take a beat, slow down for a second and see who God really is. Jesus really is because I want you to understand that his character is different from what you may have uh your own pre-configured concepts that you may have so precisely by remaining hidden we see God work not through like this raw exercise of violent power but in a different way We see God acting consistent with his character. And here's what we know about God's character from Genesis, right? Is that God's character, first and foremost, is that of a creator. Uh, That is who God is. God is one who creates. He brings life. He brings prosperity. He brings blessing, all of those things. In fact, what about the coolest, like, fact I know about Hebrew, and I I think I actually shared this last week, is like, so, you know, in the beginning, God created, right? So that word create is, the Hebrew word is bara. And the interesting thing about it is the only subject for that word is God. God is the only one who can create. Like, God is like the creator. Uh, God and creation are ultimately linked, or, or like so tightly linked. So, what does, that, what does that mean for us? What do these ideas mean for us? Well, this is what I think. So, you know, it's easy to look around the world, like the Israelites, uh, you know, suffering under cruel s- slavery and surrounded by death and under the control of the powerful Pharaoh. It can be difficult to see God. We miss God's presence. And I think a lot of times, uh, too often we look at the world and we see it seems as though God's silent. God's absent from the story. Just like like God is kind of absent from the story in Exodus. And it's true, it's true. The world can be a broken, frightening place. You know, just like Exodus, right? The pharaohs seem to all observers as the winners. And God is nowhere to challenge them. But, but, I wonder... If it might be that we are looking for God at work in the wrong ways. Maybe we're looking for the wrong kind of God. Maybe we're looking for uh, the wrong kind of Messiah, right? Maybe, like the author of Exodus, we need to see God at work in things like the blessings of babies, the beauty of nature, the joy of laughter the love of family, the care of a community, and all the places where we see flourishing abundance in life. Maybe that's where God's at work. You know, we want the God who comes in and like kicks butt and take names, right? I get it. Like that seems like the quick and easy solution to the problem. But but maybe more importantly, we have the wrong idea. We're downloading the wrong concept of what God is. And we need to like embrace the other things. Therefore... (coughs) When we see God at work in the world, we should expect to see a creator bringing life, abundance, and prosperity to this world. That means when we think about God, we shouldn't expect so much to see a warrior, but rather an artist. We should not expect so much to see a king, but rather a doctor. We should not expect so much to see like a landowner, but maybe rather a chef. You know, preparing food to share for enjoyment. We should not expect maybe like a fiery orator, but maybe a musician. We should not expect a vengeful judge, but rather a teacher. You know, someone who shares their love uh, of the the world uh, uh, and helps people see it. Uh, Maybe we shouldn't expect a soldier, but more like a scientist. Maybe we shouldn't expect like a Lord, but a parent. And... There are certainly places you can find in the Bible where all these things, you know, God is portrayed as a warrior and king. But ultimately, I think, at his core of being, that's revealed in Genesis, and continues into Exodus, and is most perfectly demonstrated in Jesus, the God of Israel is a creator. And he loves his creation. And he desires his creation to grow and flourish. I think the message of Exodus here is that we need to search for God at work. Uh, in those things. And then, like Abram, realize that we're called to bring that work uh, to be a blessing to others in the world. And what might we call that? Practicing resurrection. Okay, so...